This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Seth Godin's famous line, people like us do things like this, has an intuitive feel to it. It reflects the universal sense of being part of a tribe, who's in and who's out. The unfortunate implication of that marketing quip, though, is its inverse. People like me don't do things like that, or people like us aren't like those people. It's outsiders realizing they don't fit in. It's also often a reminder from the insiders that you and I ought to stay in our place. And when we find ourselves on the inside, precisely when we're convinced we shouldn't be there, we're left to feel like an imposter, like we got in the room, but will be asked to leave at any moment. Today's conversation is about belonging, sorting out how it is that one can go from not fitting in and not feeling welcome to discovering grace and invitation, being invited in when you thought there was absolutely no room for people like you and me. My guest is Jazz Ampafar. She's no stranger to Converge. She's been on this show a few times now. Today, though, you'll hear a remarkable story you've never heard before, one that very few have, actually. It's a story that's less about the convergence of creativity and business and more about the convergence of finding a path forward when you're convinced you've been disqualified for the race before it's even begun. Hey, Jazz, welcome to Converge. Uh, Thank you very much. Nice to be here again. Where's the cake? (laughs) Well, anyways, so we'll get to all that in a minute, cake and biscuits and tea and not me. But right now we're going to start going way back in time. Jazz, you came and spoke at an event that we hosted here in California a while ago. And you and I had a sidebar conversation that I think really sets up today's conversation really nicely. So I'm wondering if you could share your imposter syndrome story. Yes, one of the many. So I remember standing on a balcony in this amazing hotel in in Huntington Beach, looking at the ocean. And I'd come to speak at the conference and we'd agreed that. And there'd obviously been a lot of organization of flights, et cetera. And I suddenly got this moment standing on the balcony. I was just overwhelmed by how beautiful it was. It was my first time in California. And then suddenly I got, I got, someone punched me in the stomach and yanked my head back and spat in my face and said, what are you doing here? And I listened. So I just got this like physical reaction to panic. Like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do this. I, you're right. I can't do this. I, what do I know? Creative entrepreneurs. I don't even know. And I forgot my dang name to quote Hamilton. I just totally panicked. And in the midst of that kind of internal breaking down, you appeared on a balcony sort of below and to my right. And you are all, ch- you know, happy and chappy. And you're like, jazz and parfum. Hello. And I saw you. And in that moment, I saw my friend, but I also saw the guy who, you know, booked me to speak. And I, I remember saying to you, Dane, you've made a, you've made a mistake. I can't do this. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know why I'm here. I have nothing to say to these people. I, it's not, you're going to have to sort something out. I can't do it. And you smiled and you said, oh, you've got imposter syndrome. To which I felt quite like, How, what? Dane, it's not a syndrome if you are actually an imposter. <laughs> and I felt like you weren't very, you know, you weren't very caring in that moment. And uh, and you said, yeah, yeah, imposter syndrome. And then you went in. And I sort of made a mental note, you know, to stop being your friend at the next convenient points because I thought, <laughs> I don't want to And I sort of went in and thought, hold on a minute. If the person who has, you know, invited me feels that I have something to offer, then 
maybe because I felt like I was going to spontaneously combust. My chest is tight and I'm in panic mode for the next minute, just for 60 seconds, because anything is possible for 60 seconds. Let's just make like what Dane believes about me to be the truth. The story Dane tells about me, let's make that the story I tell about me for 60 seconds. And so I sit there and I breathe and I keep saying to myself, it's the truth. I have something to offer. It's a good reason I'm here. I can I can speak. I had value. I bring joy for 60 seconds. And at the end of that 60 seconds, I, I felt so good. <laughs> I felt so light. I thought, oh, I'm going to do this for another two minutes. So I made myself a cup of tea. And even the automaticity of making the tea didn't distract from the evidence and data outweighing my own thoughts and feelings. And so I, I thought I'll do this for the rest of the afternoon. I went for a bike ride and I'm like riding down the street with my legs in the air going, whoa, because I felt light. I felt light. And it was so good. I decided to just keep doing it and not stop. And, and that was a seminal point between those stories coming together, me, me taking the truth that someone else tells about myself and owning it as if it was true to me. Even in the midst of internally, everything saying something different. Like I, I always think if you've got evidence and data in one bucket and your own thoughts and feelings in another bucket, which one is true? And a lot of people would say, well, your own thoughts and feelings. But if it was a murder investigation and you had like, you know, acres of data and, and CCTV and a signed confession and the murder weapon versus Maureen in accounting who says, well, I think Bob looks dodgy. The conviction is going to come from the mountain of evidence. And so I tend to approach it like that, that the evidence and data that I have that says I'm a phenomenal human female who adds value outweighs my own thoughts and feelings. So it no longer matters what I think or feel because actually the truth and the the, the evidence and data is, is extremely positive. But that was the beginning of it, that moment, because until then I couldn't hold that opposing view alongside my own thoughts and feelings. It's amazing to me to consider that. Like I remember that moment and I remember from my vantage point down below and saying what I said, it was such a nothing thing. It was such a, <laughs> like, it, and, but I can't overstate, like, I guess I want to talk about those two buckets. So evidence and data in one and thoughts and feelings in another, mm-hmm. your thoughts mm-hmm. and feelings were there for some really important evidence and data. <laughs> like there was, yeah. you had had experiences in your life that were extraordinary and even, and, but yet, and yet. Even in the evidence and data, there was evidence and data to support that because it's not like this was your first speaking gig. I mean, you're, <laughs> you, you, you are, you are renowned. I mean, you're all over the planet. And, and yet, even in the midst of like undeniable evidence that you were in the right spot doing the right thing, the event itself, it was amazing. It was amazing it, just to watch how people responded, what you invited them into. But distinct from that, I guess, how like you forgot how did you forget the the thing is not belonging is a habit you know it's a thought i don't think i belong it's a feeling i don't feel like i belong it's a belief i don't belong it's the words you say oh i i couldn't do that i'm just this people like me don't do things like that then it's the and they're so well rehearsed that the slightest trip will put you back into that well-worn groove and path and then it becomes an action and then it becomes a belief and it becomes your character and it becomes who you are so all the stuff I was traveling around the world speaking at huge gigs and bit and having a lot of influence. And and I'd be nervous before each one. And then I sort of say to myself, well, you're worried about yourself. You're worried about looking silly. What if you think about the people who've shown up, put their kids in childcare and, and stop doing emails to, to listen because you might say something that helps them 
you know, fight for the highest good of the people they're leading, serving and loving. And then I don't feel nervous anymore. But there was always this kind of, this is too good. You know, like you have a ceiling, you only believe as what you, you only achieve what you believe you deserve. And my ceiling was, was, was nailed down. And it, at, at that moment, when I kind of reached up, I hit the ceiling, like the ceiling's coming down. I, mean, I hit the ceiling to protect myself. And I realized the ceiling was made of paper and my hands went straight through. So I think it's the habit. It's the habit of of not belonging. It's an addiction. It's it's an identity that would take so much energy and brain power to change, so much kind of, you know, burning calories, as Donald Miller would say in your brain, to to change your identity. People we'd rather be uncomfortable. We'd rather be fearful. We'd rather stay in discomfort than make a change to our identity, even if that change is the truth. Oh. You, you you pointed to Donald Miller and StoryBrand in this conversation around humans' okay. desire to survive and thrive, but also related to that is this, and uh, a lot of folks have talked about this idea that we all have different roles that we can play, that we have different labels or status that we carry, and one of those is understandably victim. Like we enter into life, we, we kind of wake up as victims when we're born. <laughs> we don't choose our <laughs> families, we don't choose our circumstance. And yet in the middle of that, there is the opportunity to trade our roles in. And, you know, the classic hero's journey is to trade our victim status in for a hero's journey. But the reason I suggest that is I'm reminded of the story of Dan Allender. And I just want to share this a bit because it gives context for the rest of our conversation. So Dan Allender is a therapist up in the Pacific Northwest here in the United States. And he works with adults who were sexually molested when they were children. And that was his story. He was sexually molested when he was a child. He grew up, worked through so many things, and then actually became world-renowned in his capacity as a psychologist to work with individuals to work through those that trauma. And what everyone on the planet would agree on, which is rare these days, but this one I think we would agree on, is that if you are sexually molested as a child, you are legitimately a victim. Like there's no denying that truth. No one would say, well, I'm not really sure. No, no, everyone agrees on that one. And yet the work that Dan would do with adults who had been molested when they were children, he had two rules when he would work with them. The first rule is he would only work with them for one year. And I'll come back to why that is in a second. The second rule is he only had one goal. And the goal was to take these legitimate victims, people who actually had been victimized and to voluntarily, even though they didn't need to, they didn't have to, for every good reason, everyone on the planet would say, you can keep that status for as long as you want, victim status. But if they were willing to trade in their victim status and instead go somewhere new, that was the single goal for them to choose to give up that status. Yet he knew that if they didn't do that within about a year, that they probably wouldn't do it. And grace on them, and he, he didn't want to waste anyone's time if ultimately he wasn't going to get to the fruit mm-hmm. he was looking for. So I find that find that profound in many ways because there's a sense in which giving up the victim, not because the victims are are wrong, bad, or broken, like it's they are broken, but they're not they didn't do anything to put themselves in that position. They're not taking responsibility for the victimizer. They are actually acknowledging their status, owning that status, but saying, I'd like to trade this one in because it's not serving me anymore in my life. And and so much of that, candidly, friend, is it's everyone's story, but it's particularly your story. And and yet there's a you've overcome that. You've you've shifted. 
in such a radical way, which brings us to the, to the story of the other night. So <laughs> the party, the party, the party I wasn't invited into. So you are, are in London and you are visiting with our mutual friend, Steve, and you're in his living room. This is just setting the table for the story. A friend of mine, a guy named Al, who I knew you hadn't met yet, but you met that night and he had a friend with him as well. And so the four of you, I believe one, two, three, four, were sitting in the living room, having a conversation. These, most of the people in the room are new to you. And then what happened? Yeah, so we're chatting. Steve's talking about something deep and meaningful about um, uh, giant London. And we're sort of talking about what it means and transformation and stuff and having a very kind of, you know, on pat conversation and there's a tiny pause a tiny pause in the conversation which i i was saying nothing i was just sat there i was millicent bystander as, as my nun like to say so i was just sat there doing nothing and um suddenly al's friend tyler who i'd met that night turned with a sense of urgency to me and said jazz do you know the story of your name tell me the story of your name and it was weird enough it was so left field and out the blue and weird enough that everybody was kind of like, oh, did I, have I missed something? Everyone was sort of taken aback. It was like, well, you know, when you're talking to a kid and they're talking about Pokemon and then they just change the subject and talk about frogs and you're like, okay, we're here now. It was like that. And I, I, I was like, it was so weird that I looked at him and he was looking at me and everyone else was kind of like, uh, what, what's happening here? And I, all I could say was, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> because I'm like, what kind of? That's not because the question was left field as it was, but because there is a massive story behind my name. But I don't know how this stranger could have any indication of it. Mm. And it and it's not a story that I share very often. So I'm kind of like, oh, a uh, bit of a naked underbelly there. What's what's happening there? What? And I'm sort of sp spiraling in a comfortable way. Like, oh, do, uh, what? Eh? Is that, no, should I say nothing? Should I say, is this, uh, what? <laughs> but the guy, Tyler is insistent. Everyone's laughing and saying, where did that go? And he's like, no, no, I need to know. I need to know. I need to know. Do you tell me the story? And he was quite serious. And then Steve, <laughs> Steve, I think jokingly said, yeah, come on, Jazz, tell us what's on your birth certificate in kind of a joking way. So I and said real, real quick before you said what you said. So I want to give people some context. So Steve and you are in cahoots around this uh, giant London. Just if you're at home and you're listening, giant London is this amazing consultancy that helps with leadership development and a whole lot more, but that's just to kind of close that loop. Steve's just kind of humoring you to get past this moment. So Tyler cannot feel so awkward is, is what it sounds absolutely. like to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's just like, yeah, you know, to, and then I'm going to say, well, it's this, you know, jazz, Jasmine, whatever. And we're going to move on. But I, I am, um, you know, committed to truth. <laughs> so I say, so on my birth certificate, I was born Linda Marie Bainbridge. And everyone just spits out their tea because Becky's there. And, tea, and they're like, what? Because we we are in each other's lives. We meet like two, three times a week. Mm. We, we, we've been doing this for the last two years. So it, <laughs> it, the, the conversation started weird and then took a turn into weirder. <laughs> so... So they're sort of saying, what, what, what? And Steve's choking on his whiskey. And uh, so I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born like, and just for context, my name is Jasmine Marie Farr. Jazz, Jazz Ampal Farr is what I'm known as now. But uh, so it was, the Farr is the only thing that stayed the same. So the deal was that I was born Linda Marie Farr, Linda Marie Bainbridge, sorry, to a white mum. I'm brown. She's white. And 
my dad, my biological dad, was called Cliff Bainbridge. But at the time of my birth, he was enjoying a spell at Her Majesty's pleasure, which means in prison, for kneecapping people and setting fire to stuff. So he had another two years to go on his sentence. And so letters were exchanged. I can't wait to meet my beautiful baby. This is before, you know, phones, camera phones. Eventually, the day came and the story I've been told is that my granddad took my mum and me, dressed in this ridiculous meringue-type christening gown for some reason, to the prison to meet this man who was going to be part of our family, who was my dad. And as I'm standing there, me, I'm sort of a brown baby being held by my white mum and her adopted dad. And this guy comes out of the prison beaming, excited. Only thing being, he's like four foot and a peanut high and he's got massive ginger hair and he's white. I mean, he's clearly not, you know, what you'd expect that, to be the father of this brown baby. So, I, I mean, I would have loved to have seen it because like, my granddad just called it as it was. So I could see, I could see what happened. Anyway, th there was disappointment, there was anger, <laughs> and there was a speedy departure. That's basically what happened. And uh, but my mum still insisted that he was my dad, so they had a DNA test. And surprise, surprise, who would have known? He wasn't my biological dad. So at this point, the embarrassment, the kind of anguish, the anger, my, my grandma and my granddad said, this is ridiculous. We're changing her last name by deed, which is like a legal document to change her name. We're changing it to Farr, which was their name, their family name. So I was Linda Marie Bainbridge on birth certificate, Linda Marie Farr by deed. Over the years, the, the deed was lost and my mum got married to an abusive alcoholic guy. I had four more kids with him and we lived with them. And and part of this story is just I was, you know, um, a slave. I was a slave. So I, my job was to take care of my brothers and sisters, steal food for them, feed them, bath them, keep them safe, which I did to the best of my ability. But I was six. So, you know, between sort of six and 11, that life was pretty hell on wheels. And at that time, you could just take your child to school and say, this is my kid and her name is this. And they would just sign you up. So my mum took me to school and said, uh, her name's Linda Marie Wapplington, which was my stepdad's name. So at school, I, I have that name. You know, I'm saying that's not my name, but no one's listening to me because, you know, why would they? So I now have Linda Marie Wapplington. So when I graduate from school, I have my certificates in Linda Marie Wapplington. My national insurance card, like my social security number, is in Bainbridge. I don't have anything to prove that I was far because the deed was handed to my parents who didn't care for filing. I didn't have any two documents that agreed on my name. Mm. And it made me look flaky. You know, I couldn't even get a job. I couldn't get an interview. I couldn't it, getting into college because I didn't have, I, I, I didn't exist. I was like a, a lost child that no one cared enough to just do me the decency of just giving me a name and keeping that name. So at 16, I marched myself into a solicitor. I lied about my age and said I was 18 and demanded to change my name to Far by deed, which they did. So my name became Linda Marie Far. I had the deed to prove it. And that's what I used to move forward, which worked really well for a few years. But then I started teaching in a school. And in this school, the head teacher was this like formidable woman, very tall, spiky black hair, long capes, looked like Cruella de Vil. And she's from the north of England. And the, the saying that my, in my family is, if you're from the north, you call a spade a spade. You just say what's on your mind, no filters. So I'm standing in the staff room on my first day. And she says, Linda, 
yeah, we've already got a Linda, so we can't call you that. And I'm like, oh, um, uh, well, that that's my name. So <laughs> she's like, no, no. Have you got a middle name? And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, Marie. And she looks me up and down and says, no, that don't suit you. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, amazing. Oh my God, this, what she didn't know. She didn't know. In the staff room full of the staff. There's like, you know, six to eight middle-aged white women and her and me standing there being ripped a new one over my name so I'm like I don't know what you want me to tell I don't know what you want from me that is I can't that's my name and out of the blue she says hold on there's that new Disney film out isn't there there's a brown lass in that what's her name and the, and everyone else in the staff room starts going who is that brown girl in the new Disney film oh, what is her oh name my, my and I'm, st- I'm there going is this legal is this legal <laughs> I don't know what is happening here? And and they're all and it's painful watching them trying to work it out. And I say, do you mean Aladdin? Do you mean Princess Jasmine in Aladdin? And the head says, Jasmine, that's it. We'll call you Jazz. That suits you. And it was done. It was done. Now a lot of people when I when I kind of talk about this are horrified at the thought of of me like in this place with people saying right you can't use that name you've got to use this one there's another brown girl called that we'll say it sounds horrific but i've got to tell you that this school was what became family to me they they in their kind of forest gumping their way through unconscious bias that wasn't even unconscious on moments that they they accepted me for who i was and embraced me mm. and they taught mm. me how to fight they were like a bunch of revolutionaries i mean they, these women were like yeah whatever the government says this we're going to fight for our kids i mean they they taught me how to be human first they taught me how to parent so much of what i learned about the phenomenal teacher i went on to be was from that school so when i left when i left that school i took the, the part of me that they gifted, the doors that they opened for me, the the confidence they had in me that rubbed off on me, I took it with me and I changed my name, my first name, from Linda to Jazz. However imperfect so, I gave you that name, it didn't matter. Yeah. It didn't matter. No, they love me. They they, they love me. You can, When someone loves you, you can forgive them when they get stuff wrong. You know, we had conversations after that. They saw my heart and humanity first. And they also noticed that I happened to be Caramel Torp. But mainly they saw my heart and humanity. I, I was liberated, you know. So I said, I'm ch- and, and I was jazz. I was known as jazz, all the parents, all the. So I changed my name and I took it with me. So I, Linda Marie Bainbridge, Linda Marie Farr, Linda Marie Wappington, Linda Marie Farr, Jasmine Marie Farr. And if that was it, if that was the end of the story, all of us listening would go, oh my gosh. But that isn't it. That's not the end. We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, I am freaking out about my experience of creating a brand new website at tellmeyourdreams.com. Coming into the project, I was overwhelmed. It just felt too complex, too many details, too many loose ends, but we're done. And I'm not sweating. I didn't burn calories. Nothing got (laughs) lost. How did you take all of these loose ends and tie them up and have give me the freedom as the principal at my company to create something that I didn't think was going to be possible. Talk me through your project management. You're not going to get a ton of confusing email threads. You're not going to be in conference calls for hours and hours a day. We have a really streamlined client portal that our clients are able to log into and see all of the regular status updates that we're giving them. Every time we have a meeting, it's logged and recorded and there are notes and action items that are clear for everyone. So everyone's on the same page about who needs to do what. 
And all of that comes from experience. We've built hundreds of different websites and we know intrinsically all of those random things that you're talking about that are hard to take into account upfront. But what we try to do is expose the parts of it where you're gonna get value from seeing what's going on or from being able to make a decision, but avoid overwhelming you by making some decisions on our own and kind of keeping you in the loop and informing you. So we wanna give you the amount of control that is best for you in the way that you work. And that can even differ on a client by client basis. That was my experience. It felt like the next right thing was always in front of me and I didn't put it there. Like you put it there <laughs> and it was always, it, it, it was like I was being guided through a process where I'm confident it was probably, you were putting the right thing for me to pay attention to for your process to build the site. But what I was impressed by was my own experience of just relief, like that the right thing was happening and all the other pieces were going to come around when they needed to at just the right moment. How much were you controlling me and I didn't know it? Well, the idea at Cantilever is that you don't necessarily have to think about that. So it's funny that you would say that. And I think that's exactly what we are shooting for is that it feels totally seamless and simple, but it's not. And part of that is just empathy and connection. And we really try to build great relationships with our clients, not in a working context, but just as people so that we have that level of trust and understanding where when we're making decisions, we're making them on behalf of our clients, right? So if we don't really know our clients and their preferences and their strategy, we can't execute on that. Friends, if you're at home and you own a business and you're thinking you sell a complicated product or service and you want to deliver that level of simplicity, you actually want to break through the noise, I cannot encourage you more as a customer of Cantilever to go to cantilever.co and really start a conversation and just see what's possible. I should say my granddad, who was an amazing guy, he died just as my mum. My mum moved away when he died. But he used to say to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always used to say, I want to be a princess. And she, he said to me once, but you are a princess. And I'm like, oh, no way. Which country do I rule? And he said, no, you're my princess. And I said, oh, I want to be a proper princess. That doesn't count. And I remember being really annoyed with him. <laughs> but Linda actually means beautiful princess. And Jasmine obviously is a princess. Obviously. So mine, obviously. So my name currently, Jasmine Marie Farr, Jazz for short. No one ever uses Jasmine. So Jazz Marie Farr, that's working well. And then I get married. I'm 26 years old and I get married to a 52-year-old vicar of a church who's white who's known me since I was a child. And it was awful. It was an, an awful relationship, an abusive relationship, which I went into because I wanted to be part of a family. I was on a high. <laughs> it was an unwise choice. And surprise, surprise, it didn't work. And when we got married, he was adamant that I changed my name. And I was, you know, when you talked before about being a victim, I get that. But I choose to see I'm not a victim. I don't want victim status. I, I visit victimhood sometimes. It's a nice place to holiday, but you wouldn't want to live there because mm. you can't grow from that position. So I was victimized. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's got that's nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's like nothing. So I don't I don't identify as a victim because you have to actively stay in that role. And I, I didn't want to sit on that chair. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of fought that the whole time. And that and that's why I left the marriage in the end. So but I was 
Jasmine Marie Harding. So I changed it back again by deed to Jasmine Marie Farr. And at that point, I had about 14 different documents to prove who I was. And like my teaching degree was in, you know, Linda Marie Farr. And when I applied for a job, I had to explain. And I hated it. I hated not, I hated being not a person. And then a few years later, I meet Ed. And Ed is a, a, just a phenomenal human male. I, I'm leaving. I've got divorced. I'm leaving the country. I've got a job in New Zealand. I've sold my house, my car. I'm going. And I there's this magazine called Marie Claire. And they had a, an article in it called Man of the Month where a guy would write in and, and sort of say answer questions. And Ed was in the magazine. He was Man of the Month. And I was reading it. And my first thought was, what a posy git. Look at him. He's thinking he's all that. But, uh, but I read his answers and he actually seemed quite a decent guy. Plus, you got a free meal and you got to be in a magazine. So what's not to like? So I apply. Ed doesn't pick me. He picks someone else who, luckily for Ed, blows him out at the last minute. And then he picks me. So I go on this date with him. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know him, Dane. He's so he's he's so he's everything I want to be. He's humble. He's comfortable in himself. And I, I literally think there's no way this guy is going to be interested in me. So I'm just going to relax. Maybe we'll be friends. So I sit in the day like burping, farting, you know, scratching my bum. It doesn't matter because we're not going to we're not going to get together. Mm. And and I, somehow somehow we do. <laughs> you know, We fall in love and we we see each other every day and we've been married for 20 years and we've got three children and he is the bomb. Yes. But when he asked me to marry him, when we decided to get married, he we talked about a week before our wedding, we talked about what we're going to do about the name and he knows my story and he loves me in a way that I didn't understand was possible to exist and I say to him babe I I cannot change my name I will not change I it's my name it's all I have I have fought for it it's the it's part of my identity it's the way I belong I I it I'm not changing my name and Ed says but I, I know how you feel, though, about kids and, and everyone having the same name. I know what pain that's been to you. And I thought you wanted to have the same name as as our kids. And I do. I, I, I want that more than ever because it's a new beginning, new belonging. But I can't. I won't. I, I, I'm not changing my name. Mm. And in that moment of deep pain and this on the cusp of this new belonging that I couldn't, I wasn't brave enough to step into, Ed did something that completely floored me and is the singular most amazing thing that anyone's ever done for me. He said, we're swapping rings. Why don't we swap names? I'll give you Ampal and you give me Far." And Ed changed his name to Ampal Far, mm -hmm. and I changed my name to Ampal Far. And we became the only two Ampal Fars on the planet. Now there's five of us. <laughs> <laughs> His family, he's gone in. His family didn't speak to us for a year because it's like, you have taken a woman's name. What, you have breast shame upon your family. I mean, it was really, it was, it was hard. It was, it was hard on him. And, you know, he, he, he hasn't had the same experience growing up as me. He grew up in, in poverty, but it not, but he had a family that loved him. And, and, and to, to, I, I, I know how that it was so huge. It was so huge for him. And it was 10 times bigger for me. It was just amazing. So I told this story. So I told the story. And I sort of get to, and everyone's laughing about the head teacher and the the Jasmine and the princess and the story and all. And everyone is just sat with their mouths open. Tyler, who asked me the question, is in tears. He's crying. And I sort of look up and look around, and people are just, you have to tell this story, Jazz. 
And I'm like, okay, do I? Okay. But I want to know why Tyler asked. I still want to know. I'm like, what? <laughs> you didn't expect this. What What made you ask that? And and Tyler talked about there's sort of stuff in his family around racism and guilt and, and reparations. And, and he adopted two young girls of color, mm. Tyler's wife, in his family. And he said to me that he wanted to know how I landed on jazz because the spirituals that slaves would sing that suffering, that pain, that lack of belonging, that nowhereness, that victimization that, that they would express in songs. That became the blues. That transformed, grew, creatively landed on the blues. And out of the blues came jazz. And jazz is a kind of unsyncopated, like things that don't really go together. And in jazz, because of its history with the spirituals and the, the blues, is, is suffering and hope existing together this magical oxymoron of a place where suffering and hope can be true and held at the same time and that is my name that is me jazz and 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 in that moment it, i just i felt like i i'd gone full circle from the beginning of my name to the conversation in california to that moment that's who i am i have this ability to stand in the center and be held, hold both suffering and hope and use that as a, a way of joining dots for people. So, so much in what you're describing. This, I mean, this is my experience of you as my friend for so many years now. Out of suffering, you were gifted, you fought for, you discovered, you and it is who you are. I mean, it makes so much sense. And yet that moment in Huntington Beach, you know, you'd been married to Ed for many years, you had your children and everything. Mm. And yet there's still these moments, right? Where mm. is it, do you forget who you are? What happens? You know, you you told me this, there's nature, nurture, and now. And that nurture is so strong and so embedded. Like I can say I'm a housewife from LA County. I identify as a housewife from LA County. But if the housewives in LA County say, you're not one of us, then I don't, I can have the identity, but I can't have the belonging. What was embedded in me by other people, stories that other people told me about me growing up when you are reliant on information from external places was that people like me didn't do things like that and that I wasn't good enough. So that is if you cut me in half, that's in the center, that's in the core. It's so deep. It's not something that is even conscious. And yet it's meant it's driven my bus for years. It's it's allowed fear to drive my bus for years. And much as I know, I don't think anyone has done as much work as I have. I mean, I have done the work. You don't get to be this woman by sitting on the sofa, crossing your fingers, hoping for the best. You do the work. And I know how much that is. I know how many times I've given up. I mean, you know how many times I've laid on the floor face down and just wanted it to stop because I can't do it anymore. So it isn't this kind of wonderful positivity story. It's the real battle of something that does not want you to realize how much power you have. Because the moment you do, you are unstoppable. And that's that's dangerous for anything that needs you to be turning the volume down on yourself. It makes you dangerous. So I, I, I don't know that you forget. It's, it's not forget. It's that the, the, the thoughts and feelings are the, are the things that I choose to put faith in truth-wise rather than the evidence and data. It's amazing what people can convince themselves is true. So if, if folks are at home and they're listening, like Steve and Alan, 
the whole crew except for me are listening <laughs> jaw, <laughs> jaw on the floor yeah not bitter uh jaw on the floor and i know they are and yet they're trying to think through for themselves man i can relate to this maybe i am in that place where people like me don't do things like that or they've forgotten who they are or they've just learned the habit of not belonging in the midst of that reality if they're with us right now and they are and we're having tea what do you say i wish i had an explanation a map a a, a step to say this is where you go this is what you do but what i do have is the mind blowing truth that who i am and what i do and how i live is what it looks like when you know that you belong when you feel that when it is irrefutable and and that that is your one job <laughs> you you can be a dad you can be a pastor you can be a, a ceo you can be an exec you can be all these things but your one job is to stand on the truth about yourself when it comes to who you are and where you belong and that might be a space you create for yourself because in the the middle of the world you exist in people want to pull you one way or another but it's your story it's you taking control of your own story and believing in that element of truth of belonging now for me it's got everything to do with people it's got a lot to do with god i think but for years that was kind of a story that i couldn't accept and i couldn't struggle with so i kind of put it on something that is other what i did is i kept saying so what if people like me did do things like this what would it look like so okay what if this wasn't all what if this wasn't as good as it gets what if there's more and and that willingness to keep questioning and i said this i said this to al you have one job one job and it's the most important job you will ever undertake and it is to believe that you belong because everything else flows from that everything else and if you're in a place that makes that impossible if you're in an abusive relationship if you're in you know if you're struggling with any kind of challenge then it will feel like that is the main thing you have to deal when we want to make things better we look for rescue and what we should be looking for is value when we're trying to help other people you value people rather than rescuing them because rescuing is is this thing that we want to do instinctively but valuing someone is actually pouring into them as well so valuing yourself believing that you are worthy belonging finding somewhere healthy that you belong is the one singular most important thing you can do for yourself for your family for your work for your team for your organization for your community for you. it's the one most important thing that you can do so i would say move towards that in any way that you can with someone that you love and trust as soon as possible This was episode six, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to convergepodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. Thank you.
an Ironic Media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.